You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Altagir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello everybody, this is Juan de Lara, the Cultural Manager at Asia House, and thus every week, along with my colleague Saif al-Rashidi, we bring you the amazing opportunity to learn more about fascinating topics pertaining to Asia and the Islamic world. Today, Saif will be in charge of conversing with Dr. Bilal Badat, historian and master calligrapher, who will help us unveil the true meanings of Islamic calligraphy and reveal that it is more than just a craft by exploring the tradition as a spiritual, artistic and educational journey passed down from master to apprentice for over 14 centuries. Bilal completed his master's in Islamic art and archaeology at the University of Oxford and wrote his doctorate on the concept of education and style in Islamic calligraphy at the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. Currently, Bilal teaches early and medieval Islamic art and architecture, art and architecture of the Ottoman and Persian world, and Islamic aesthetics and Persian manuscripts at the University of Tübingen. Bilal, Saif, welcome. We are all ears and ready to immerse ourselves in the beautiful world of the pen. Well, Bilal, thank you very much for being on our podcast series. We're really happy to have you talking about calligraphy, your area of expertise. And I wondered if you could start by telling us what the importance of calligraphy is in the Islamic world. Thank you, Saif. It's a great question to start the conversation. So calligraphy is important because it is this rich and diverse body of knowledge and techniques and skills and artistry that is used to transcribe the Holy Quran a host of other religious texts, and more broadly, it is used to transcribe knowledge and writing in many forms. Now, not only is calligraphy used to transcribe those things, but it's used to transcribe those things in a beautiful manner. So to start at the beginning, in the 7th century, there comes this time after Revelation when the early Muslim communities make a decision to transcribe the Qur'an in its entirety. Now, it's important to remember that for Muslims, the Qur'an is not the product of human intelligence, or ingenuity, nor is it an expression of human creativity. For Muslims, the Qur'an is the literal word of God. So one can imagine that these early scribes of the 7th, 8th and 9th century were really grappling with this question of how does one transcribe the eternal? And in response, we can see that there is a concerted effort on behalf of these early Muslims to develop a systematic script or style of writing whose beauty is commensurate with the task of glorifying the word of God. There's an effort, we can say, to develop a script which is visually distinct and aesthetically pleasing. Now, the fact that the Quran has remained central to Islamic law, to ethics, ritual, piety throughout the centuries, has ensured that for generations, Muslims have remained dedicated to beautiful writing up until the present day. But, of course, I must insert a caveat here and say that Calligraphy is not just used for religious purposes, right? It does have purposes other than writing the Qur'an. So we can see, for example, there's a cornucopia of different contexts for calligraphy, ranging from hadith to political ciphers to street signs even. And we cannot say that all of these things are infused with some kind of sacred or religious meaning. But nevertheless, calligraphy is the designated medium for transcribing the Qur'an. And for this reason, it remains the most revered and highly regarded art form in the Islamic world. Now, one can also think about this question in terms of aesthetic sensibility. So aside from the connection with the Quran, we can ask why was writing, and specifically beautiful writing, considered to be something of so much value 
in Muslim society? And I think a possible answer lies in the status of knowledge. So as Franz Rosenthal famously pointed out, Islamic civilization is characterized by an attitude towards knowledge as something of supreme value. And writing is the vehicle for knowledge to be recorded and disseminated. And calligraphy is that thing, that artistic medium, which beautifies that writing. So on a visual level, we can say calligraphy makes knowledge and writing more attractive. And on a spiritual level, as a number of pre-modern authors argue, it transmutes writing into this higher level in the great chain of being. So to summarize, we can say knowledge gives value to writing, writing gives meaning to calligraphy, and calligraphy elevates writing. And so it has this real momentous importance in connection with the Qur'an and in connection with knowledge. Thank you. And in what way is it more than art? Well, in many ways, this connection between calligraphy, the Qur'an, religion, and knowledge profoundly infuses meaning, not just into calligraphy, but into writing in general. So one of the things that we find in the primary sources on calligraphy is this recurring designation of calligraphy as ilm, right, or some kind of knowledge. Some would even argue that it's a kind of religious or mystical science. And this is because, as they argue, it would have been impossible to transmit and disseminate revelation without writing. And on top of that, writing transcribes knowledge, and knowledge leads to a better understanding of God, which ultimately is the goal of creation. So authors also frequently cite a number of Quranic verses and hadith in order to support this argument, in order to support this designation of calligraphy as the highest kind of form of knowledge in the epistemological hierarchy of the craft tradition. So one of the Quranic verses is right? by the pen and what they inscribe, which is the opening of Surah Al-Qalam. Uh, Surah 68, or they cite Surah al right? and God taught by the pen as proof that scribal activity and writing is divinely sanctioned and endorsed. One of the hadiths that is frequently cited by these authors is right? the first thing that God created was the pen. And then the hadith continues and then the pen transcribed writing on the sacred tablet. And in this writing is everything that will happen from the moment of creation up until the end of time. And so calligraphy is considered to have these kinds of celestial origins. And the calligrapher is kind of replicating these, these, this kind of celestial movement in the material plane. And this gives value to writing. And of course, on top of that, it relates to this thing we discussed earlier, which is that writing transcribes knowledge. So for this reason, it's more than just an art. It's considered to be this kind of blessed science. And the calligrapher is the master or the gatekeeper of this sacred body of knowledge. And this is probably why there is this incredibly rich and diverse body of rituals and ethics and different styles of writing and different ways of teaching this particular tradition that are related to things that we find in the teaching of other forms of Islamic knowledge. Thank you. One of the things that I'm most interested in and which you know a lot about is the idea of transmission through calligraphy and someone teaching somebody else and this chain of passing of knowledge. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, my, my initial interest in, into transmission was peaked when I was doing some reading and then I, I found out that calligraphers were often buried next to their masters. Right? And I just thought that was an incredible thing that a calligrapher may choose to be buried next to his calligraphy teacher ahead of his own family, ahead of his spouse, ahead of his kind of spiritual teacher sometimes. And I thought, well, what's going on there? 
You know, why is this so important, especially in this thing which we consider to be an art form or, or a craft? And then the more reading I did, then I realized, well, students are only ever allowed to have one master during their lifetime. And it's only once the master passes away that the student is allowed to go to another teacher. And it relates to this kind of designation of calligraphy as the sacred body of knowledge. Now, when we're talking about transmission, calligraphy has a genealogy in the same way that we have genealogies of transmitters of hadith. And the genealogy performs a similar function in hadith in many ways, in the sense that it provides a connection between the original kind of charismatic founder, which in the case of Hadith is the Prophet Muhammad, and the kind of latest transmitter of this particular body of knowledge. So in the case of calligraphy, the, the kind of founder of Islamic calligraphy is considered to be Ali ibn Abi Talib, the Prophet's cousin and son-in-law. And then the genealogy kind of continues through a number of significant number of individuals up until the latest transmitter. So it also forms a chain between the latest calligrapher and the earliest calligraphers to show that there is no kind of fabricated knowledge inserted at any point. And it also gives legitimacy to the latest calligrapher. Now, how does one assimilate oneself into this genealogy? Well, this is through the traditional ijazah system, right? So the ijazah is basically a license to transmit and teach calligraphy and also to sign calligraphy with your own name. Now, Suleiman Sa'deddin Mustakim Zare, who's this great 18th century Ottoman chronicler and writer, he uh, attributes the founding of this Ijazah tradition to Ibn Sayyid, who's this great Mamluk calligrapher in the 14th century. And by the Ottoman period, the Ijazah system really becomes codified. Right? So how does one obtain an Ijazah and what does the Ijazah look like? Well, traditionally, the calligrapher would approach a master calligrapher and ask for permission to be his or her student. And if the master calligrapher accepts, then the calligrapher kind of begins this journey of learning in the form of an apprenticeship, which culminates with the bestowal of an ijazah. And typically this takes kind of between five to sometimes 12 or 13 years, depending on the teacher and the student. So the first thing that happens is the master will prepare the materials for the student. And then the master will write out a particular prayer. Right. In the in the Thuluth script or the Nas script, it, the master typically writes out a prayer, which is, Oh Lord, make it easy, do not make it difficult. Oh Lord, may it end in goodness. And then the student is expected to imitate this line of writing to, to the best of his or her ability. Right Now, the teacher also appends this line of writing with a series of auxiliary aids or instructive aids, which show the student exactly the, how the letters should appear. So this these kind of visual aids indicate the precise dimensions, which is based on the nocta, this kind of rhomboid-shaped dot, and also includes lines which indicate the kind of correct contours of all the different letters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the student has to go away for a week and practice. So the student goes home and writes these kind of letters over and over and over again, kind of uses these aids to try to match his or her writing to those of the teachers, and then brings this mesh, it's called the mesh or practice, to the teacher the following week. And then the teacher will look at the student's writing and then will administer corrections and say, this is too big, this is too small, this is not curved enough, this is too straight, et cetera, et cetera. And then typically, the student, unless the student is prolific and incredibly gifted, the teacher will say, do it again, do it again, do it again. And so through this kind of cycle of repetition and correction, the student will slowly develop the ability to master the tools and also develop a style of writing which is close to the imitation 
of the masters, right? So the, after the um, student works on this initial du'a, which on average may take about a year in the Ottoman period, just writing this du'a, seeing the teacher once a week means that the student would have to write this about 50 times. And then they will be able to move on to the haruf, the letters, and then the double letter combinations. And then finally, after a number of, of years, the student will be allowed to move on to sentences. And then once the teacher thinks the student is ready enough, the teacher will say to the student, you need to prepare a presentation piece. So for the presentation piece, the student will have to imitate another work of writing, right, from another master. And then once the master says, okay, this is a proficient imitation, the master will sign that ijazah. And then there will also be a number of other counter signatories, right, one or two, sometimes it can go up to 40 in the some kind of Ottoman traditions. And then the student is licensed as master calligrapher. Now the ijazah is, it, you know, once the student receives the ijazah, it doesn't mean that this person is now a great master because really in many ways, the ijazah is just a certification that the student is successful at imitation, right? It takes a significant number of years for the student to then develop his or her own style of writing. And the connection with the master is not cut at this point. The student will continue, the, the kind of graduated student will continue to bring his or her work to the master for the duration of his or her life. So that's a general kind of framework of the ijazah tradition and how it relates to uh, transmission. Thanks. Sounds like a very long process. Are there other difficulties in becoming a calligrapher? There's the technical difficulties, of course, which is being able to master a reed pen, being able to control the consistency of ink and how that relates to paper. But I think the biggest difficulty that many face, and certainly that I faced, is overcoming this kind of, at least for me, I was trained in, a, in the Western tradition, right, of learning, which in many ways encourages creativity and individuality. Of course, there's, you know, you have to conform to certain principles, but you're encouraged to find your own voice. And this really does not exist in calligraphy in this apprenticeship phase, right? In the apprenticeship phase, you really have to conform to something which is bigger than you. And that takes a while. And, you know, there's a number of reasons. The most obvious one is to tame your ego, which is to, when someone tells you this is terrible, do it again, do it again, do it again. You really have to sacrifice your own aggrandized vision of yourself and your artistic abilities. And then the second thing, which is, for me was, was really strange is to subscribe to the idea that someone can just see things that you can't see, right? So what I mean by that is when you first start learning calligraphy, the teacher will write like an elif for you. And then you go home, you write the elif a thousand times or whatever. And then you, in your head, you think I have successfully managed to imitate my teacher's writing. And then you show the teacher and the teacher says, well, here's about 12 different mistakes that you've made, right? Do it again. And you can't really see it in the beginning, even though the teacher points it out to you, you can't really see it. But then you kind of concentrate and you look at the corrections and you realize, oh, my goodness, I've made a huge mistake. And you really have to trust this particular individual there. This is the kind of importance of the kind of character formation, I think, when you pursue this particular craft is having trust, have, having reliance, being able to tame your own ego. I think those things are the most difficult when it comes to being a calligrapher. And then on top of that, there is this kind of technical difficulty. It's incredibly difficult to become an accomplished master of calligraphy. As the head of the calligraphers of our day, Hassan Chelebi says, in order to be a calligrapher, you have to practice 25 hours a day. You know, this is really what it takes to become a master calligrapher. 
Thanks. You spoke about character building as part of the process. How important is the transformation of character? It's fundamental to the calligraphic tradition. So, you know, nowadays we have this kind of Cartesian view of craft and knowledge production in the sense that I can put something out there in the world. And the thing which is important is the work that I produced and you know, the person that I am or the person that I become is irrelevant to the reception of this particular work. And it's irrelevant to the process of producing this particular thing. But that really is foreign to the kind of Islamic craft traditions. The Islamic craft traditions based on this idea that the person has to have a character which is commensurate with the body of knowledge that you're engaging with. And similar to, well, if we think about the Hadith tradition, for example, you know, anyone can come along and memorize a hadith and transmit a hadith and repeat it verbatim. But it's not necessarily accepted as true unless that person has a particular character which is worthy of transmitting that hadith. And this is how kind of some of the early hadiths were kind of codified, right? And calligraphy in many ways is similar in the sense that in order to become a master calligrapher, the master has to verify that your character has reached a certain level. As my teacher told me, he said, I will never graduate a liar, for example. And so character formation is a big part of this tradition, you know, for some of the reasons that I described earlier, in the sense that if you are impatient, if you do have an ego, you're not going to go very far in this tradition. Right? Either you're going to give up at a particular point or, or you're going to be desperate to change this thing which has been passed down from generation to generation. Teachers have different techniques that they employ in order to shape the character of the student. So, for example, you know, in my experience of learning calligraphy, it's never literal, right? It's never that the teacher comes along and says, hey, Bilal, you're a bad guy. You need to be a good guy. Here's seven different steps in order to be a good person. It doesn't really work like that. I think the, number, the primary way that master calligraphers do this is through example. And this is something which great 18th century source on Islamic calligraphy called the, the Gifts of the Calligraphers, which is written by Suleiman Sa'dettin Mustakim Zadeh. And in this book, he includes some advice for calligraphers. And he includes certain things which are kind of integral to the formation of a calligrapher. And he describes some of these character traits, for example, that one must be in conformity with the principles of the Quran and the Sunnah, one must be patient, one must not be treacherous, one must not be a liar. And throughout this text, he kind of gives examples where when people do display some of these characteristics like treachery, like betrayal, or even too much stubbornness in religion, for example, that it does have an impact on their knowledge production. It does influence the craft in a particular way. And those that do have a good character it really influences the work itself. So one of the ways that a calligrapher can transmit these character traits to the student is through example, is by embodying these things that Mustakim Zadeh describes. Another way that masters might do this is through controlling the way that the student progresses. So you might have, if, for example, you've got three students and one of them is incredibly gifted, but is arrogant. And the other one is not so gifted, but has a kind of relatively ego-free character. The master might actually make the arrogant student repeat the lesson more times than the one who is not as gifted and by doing this the kind of master is trying to eliminate the ego of, the, of this particular student and I, I i can say that from personal experience that it happens there does come a point where you think oh gosh i am 
nothing in comparison to this ocean of knowledge. Another thing that my teacher recently taught me, which I was so fascinated by, was I asked him the question of when we're looking as an art historian, when I look at some of these manuscripts from the 14th, 15th, 16th century, sometimes do notice mistakes in their writing. You can see that the hand of the calligrapher is shaking at particular points or there's kind of ink smudges on, on the page or the, the letters don't really conform to the correct portions that we might identify today. But nevertheless, these works of writing are so much more beautiful than anything that we can produce. And this is not just kind of nostalgia. This is something which is generally agreed upon by the calligraphers of our time, despite the fact that we have so much technology and we have such a vast improvement in tools. And he said, listen, the difference between a good calligrapher and a bad calligrapher is that a good calligrapher will write according to his or her level, will not try to write according to the great masters of the past. They will be able to understand who they are. They know themselves intimately. So when they're writing a piece of calligraphy, it just comes naturally because they're writing according to their level. And I found that to be fascinating because it, it kind of relates to academia, right? If I read some kind of theory-laden social science article, there is this temptation to produce an article which is enmeshed in theory. And it's not really who I am. It's not really my voice. Probably I don't even understand it. And the reader, when they read it, they just think, what's going on here? There's no kind of natural voice here. And that's because I'm not writing according to my level, right? I'm trying to be someone better than I am. Now, this doesn't imply stasis, right? Because in between writing, of course, you're improving, you're improving, improving. And in this way, your style of writing is, is incremental. So the way that the teacher can help the student to write in a natural way is by peeling back these layers of the ego and helping the student to understand who they really are, what their level really is, and being comfortable with that when they're making something, and then working on that, improving that. So then the next time when you're writing natural, it's at a higher level of craft. And in this way, I think there is this really fascinating relationship between character and craft and aesthetic and cultural production. And can you give us examples of a couple of pieces that you've produced that are particularly meaningful to you? For me, probably the, the most meaningful work that I produced is my ijazah or my license. For this, I imitated a work by a great 19th century master, Mehmed Shevki Effendi, who I, I feel very close to, is someone that I really admire, not just in terms of this person's uh, calligraphic production, but also in terms of his character and his personal contribution. That piece is very close to me. Also, there's something in Islamic calligraphy called taqlid. So taqlid is basically what you do for your ijazits, where you imitate the work of another master to the best of your ability. And then you write in the colophon that this is an imitation. So you would write, for example, naqalahu bilal min ahdaluddin an khat sami effendi. It was imitated by Bilal, who is among the students of Eftaluddin from the writing of Sami Effendi. And the process of doing a taqlid is quite transformative because you're really learning the ways that another calligrapher produced these individual letters. So in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of a ped pedagogical process. It's very instructive. But because you're studying this person's writing so intimately, in many ways, you form this kind of connection with this great master that you're imitating. You know, a work of taqlid can take up to a year before you kind of produce something. And it is considered to be something of value when you produce a, a good taqlid. It's also considered to be a way of gaining or acquiring the spiritual blessings of that work and sometimes even of that master. And these kinds of practices go hand in hand with some of the other things which form a connection to 
calligraphers from the past, things like visiting their grave and praying a fatiha for them, or things like pen burial, which is where you bury your pen in the grave of another master calligrapher for a week, and then you retrieve that pen a week later, and then you use that pen to, to write, because it's believed that you're absorbing some of the barakah of that particular individual into the pen, and then you're transmitting that barakah into the written works that you produce. There's a host of these kinds of pen-related rituals in calligraphy. So the, the few works of taqlid that I've done have been quite important for me. But overall, I'd say it's the works where I've worked alongside my teacher, which are really meaningful for me. So what I mean by that is works where I've kind of written something and then given it to him for correction. And then he gives me some advice and then he gives it back to me. And then I work on something. And on a few occasions, he signed works for me with my name, which is like a really big honor. With a tradition like this, how can you innovate within it? And who determines what is excellent? It's a great question because one of the ideas about calligraphy is that it is an imitative and thus it is a static tradition. So imitation is one of the foundational principles of calligraphic learning. But calligraphers also innovate. And this also has different levels. So if we think about letters as individual structural units, so let's take the elif, for example, and I'd encourage people that are listening to kind of go to Google and type in thuluth elif just for a kind of reference. This is Elif in the Thuluth script. So the Elif, when you examine it closely, it does have a very slight S-curve to it, the body does. And at the top, we have this slanted oblique structural unit, which has this kind of very sharp dagger on the right-hand side, which is called the Zulfe, or the kind of forelock, right? These are the kind of main components of the Elif. Now, typically, an Elif might be six or seven noctas high. That's the kind of vertical height of the Elif. Now, if when your teacher writes it for you, you're meant to imitate it exactly as the teacher transmitted that to you. And that teacher is basing that on certain styles or scripts that were developed throughout Islamic history, right? So in the Ottoman tradition, it might be the Sheikh Hamdullah school or the Hafiz Osman school or the Mehmed Shevki school. Now, when if someone wants to imitate on top of these existing prototypes, then one has a relative amount of freedom to change, for example, the degree of the S right? You can make it slightly more curved than others. So Mahmoud Jalaluddin, for example, 19th century, early 19th century calligrapher who developed his own style, he has a fairly straight elif, whereas Mustafa Rakim or Sami Effendi, they have more of an S-curve in their elif. When we look at this oblique zulfair, this kind of structural unit at the top, some, of, some calligraphers like to have their the kind of dagger point very sharp. Others like to have it curved. Some like to have it two noctas high. Some like to have it one and a half noctas high. So when you're innovating, what a calligrapher does, which is when you look at an existing style, the way that a calligrapher of the past has done all of their letters, you isolate all of these individual structural elements and you're making a series of changes to them. And in this way, one can innovate. And it's not easy to be able to do this because it requires a good 10, 20 years first of analysis. And then you're, you can successfully innovate. And then the calligrapher might put forward his or her new script. And then it's up to the community, the calligraphers, to determine whether or not this script is successful or not, whether it's something that is worth adopting or whether it's something that people will say, well, you know, you had a nice try, but unfortunately it wasn't successful enough. So we're just going to stick to whatever we were learning in the past. And generally, this is done by consensus, right? So this is something that I'm 
trying to work on now in, in an article, which is the ways in which consensus approves of innovation. And through this approval, innovation then becomes tradition. And then it's kind of a cyclical process that repeats itself. And have there been prominent women calligraphers in the past? Sure. I mean, there have been many female calligraphers throughout Islamic history. And these are written about Hilal Kazan has written a book called Female Calligraphers Past and Present. She kind of lists a number of female calligraphers starting from the 7th century up until the present day. And the first female calligrapher and also the first female calligraphy teacher is believed to be Shifa bin Abdullah al-Adawiyah. So she was a relative of uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab and she was also the teacher of Umar ibn al-Khattab's daughter Hafsa. And there are no surviving works from uh, Shifa bin Abdullah, but the earliest surviving work of a female calligrapher dates to the 10th century. So it's still very early. It dates to 907 AD. And it was written by a female calligrapher called Fad. So she actually signed the work and she was a consort of Abu Ayyub Ahmed bin Muhammad. And he was based in the Qairawan. So we actually have a physical record of this female calligrapher's writing and she was writing in the Kufic script. When it comes to the Ottoman period, which is more my, my specialism, the earliest known female calligrapher is someone called Ummi Hatun, who wrote a book called the Muhammadiyah. She transcribed this book called the Muhammadiyah, which is a book about prophetology in general. And she wrote this book in Gallipoli in July 1552. And it's interesting that she mentions that she was the daughter of a blacksmith and not someone who was educated in the palace, which is more typical of female calligraphers in the Ottoman period. One of my famous calligraphers in the Ottoman period is someone called Esma Ibret Hanum, who was this prolific um, calligrapher. And she was very talented at, at a young age. She received her ijazah as a teenager. And she was a kind of late 18th century, early 19th century calligrapher who studied under the great Mahmoud Jalaluddin. And she eventually married her master. And she very famously, she wrote Ahilia, which is this kind of calligraphic composition, which describes the features and character of the Prophet Muhammad, um, she wrote this hilya and presented it to Sultan Selim III and his mother. And it was so beautiful that she was given a grant and a daily stipend for her effort. So calligraphy was really supported from in the kind of upper echelons of, of society. And we have many female calligraphers. She, Esma Ibrahim Hanum was also the daughter of a royal official. This is kind of more common in the Ottoman period where female calligraphers were somehow connected to the royal court. And thinking a bit more, have there been prominent calligraphers who aren't Muslim within the Islamic tradition? It's a, it's a difficult question. I mean, that because don't know, there's no kind of record where we can say non-Muslim calligraphers were approaching Muslim masters in the past. We don't know what the answer would have been. We don't know whether a teacher would have said, yes, you can learn this thing or no. What we do know, like I'd said earlier, as Mustakim Zadi says, a calligrapher has to live in accordance with the Quran and Sunnah. So we can assume that there is an emphasis on the religion of the individual, right? But nevertheless, there are examples, a kind of handful of examples of Christian calligraphers. So one of the most famous examples is Krikor Kacheol, or also known as Krikor Kacheyan, who's this Armenian 19th century non-Muslim calligrapher in the Ottoman Empire. And Krikor Kocheolu is famous because he was part of a movement to revive the Kufic script. And he was very successful in, in this endeavor, so successful, in fact, he was commissioned to write Kufic inscriptions for a mosque. So there's a mosque in Kadukoy, I think, in Istanbul, 
uh, called the Zuhdu Pasha Mosque, and you can actually see the Kufic writing of Krikor Kacheolu in that mosque. The idea of having non-Muslim craftsmen working on what we would you know, say is Muslim cultural production is not something new. We find that's all the way in the Umayyad period where we have non-Muslim craftsmen and architects working to construct you know, Islamic buildings. There doesn't, there doesn't really seem to be a problem with that. Nowadays, of course, the story is completely different. I myself have a number of non-Muslim apprentices. And if you go to many places in uh, the Muslim world or in North America or in Europe, we can see that it's very popular and that there are a significant number of non-Muslim people participating in the art of Islamic calligraphy. Thanks. Perhaps I should have asked you this at the beginning, but where does your own interest in calligraphy come from? My own interest in calligraphy comes from... It's like a real... <laughs> it's like tough because I've seen too many Marvel movies and there's always a egotistical desire to create some kind of origin story to say, well, at a very young age, I was fascinated. I was always fascinated by letters. And then I did this and this and this and I became a master calligrapher. <laughs> the truth is... I, I don't think I have one answer to that. It's, I was always fascinated by art in general, but if I was to choose a moment when I knew that I wanted to become a calligrapher, I would say it was in, I think, 2004 or 2005, the British Museum hosted an exhibition of Hassan Chalebi, this great master calligrapher of our time and his students. And I was very fortunate through serendipity to be able to attend that exhibition as like a 17-year-old. And this is where I first came into contact with the idea of genealogy and transmission. And I was just overwhelmed. I was so fascinated by this thing. And I invited someone who was there, one of Hassan Chalabi's students. Now that I look back on it, I think it was quite audacious as a 17-year-old, but I just said, can, can you come to my house? Please come to my house. And, you know, he was so gracious to accept his name as Al-Buhayri. He's this great Algerian calligrapher who now works in Jordan at the court of the king. And he said yes. And then we continued the conversation and he came to my room and I said, oh, look, I've done some calligraphy too. And I had just kind of foolishly transcribed some work in the fullest script on the wall. And he kind of looked at it and, you know, very politely said, oh, it's, it's okay, but there's a kind of ton of mistakes here. And just, I was just so fascinated by the fact that there is this kind of right way of doing things and it has this historical tradition and it was something that I always wanted to do so when it came to writing my PhD I decided to do a kind of ethnography slash art historical study so I thought there is this incredible tradition of Islamic calligraphy but how can I as an art historian as a responsible art historian speak about this thing without really understanding it fully as Nabil Safwat says calligraphy doesn't reveal its, its charms lightly to the casual observer Right. If you present 10 manuscripts from the 15th century to the 20th century to a non-specialist, they do look the same. That's undeniable. And so I thought, how can I write about this thing without understanding it fully? So then I thought, I, I'll, I'm going to do an ethnography. I'm going to try to become a master calligrapher myself. And through this process of learning, I'll be able to understand calligraphy more intimately, but also use this as a lens through which to understand the past. And so my, my doctoral thesis really is about the transmission of calligraphy in the Ottoman period. And it's based on some kind of ethnographic research as well as art historical research. So that was kind of my avenue into it. And then whilst I was studying, I, I think my supervisor was really worried because I was not really responding to her emails as I should have because I, I kind of drowned in this ocean of calligraphy and I just wanted to be 
a master calligrapher. For me, that was a, a true form of knowledge compared to what I was learning at university. And then I took my ijazah in 2017. And since then, I've been taking on apprentices and trying to transmit this thing to the next generation and doing that along, you know, using my research in calligraphy as a practicing craftsman to inform my academic writing. And you're publishing a book, right? That's right. Yes. So hopefully that will be published next year. And it's called The Making of a Master Calligrapher. And it kind of chronicles the process of learning specifically in the Ottoman and kind of broader Persianate tradition. And what are the different forms of transmission? So not just looking at the transmission of technical skills, but also the transmission of some kind of spiritual body of knowledge. You know, thinking about apprenticeship, not just transformative in Islamic calligraphy, it's also something which is part of a broader pedagogical tradition. So Trevor Marchant, one of my heroes in academia, is someone who embedded himself with minaret builders in Yemen and masons in Mali and also amongst carpenters in Stratford in, in London. And he kind of speaks about how apprenticeship is transformative. It, it forms character, it's character building, it gives one a sense of control. And calligraphy really fits into this kind of transformative tradition of learning. And then the second thing I'm working on is a project called Beauty and Islamic Theology. And this looks at the ways in which theology and mysticism have shaped Islamic material culture. If you go to YouTube and just type in beauty and Islamic theology, you can see some of the interviews we've, we've done. A new one is being released every two weeks. So hopefully this will result in an edited volume, which we're very uh, excited about. Thanks. I'll just ask you one last brief question. If you could summarize the way calligraphy has transformed your life, what would you say? <laughs> I think it would be better to ask the people around me, but I can only tell you what other people have told me, which is, they do say that I've become more patient, that I've become perhaps at least the cl people closest to me, that I've become less angry, less temperamental, a little bit more compassionate, but perhaps certainly more dedicated and given more drive to a particular things. I, I think calligraphy is something which gives meaning to, to one's life. And I don't think that's limited to calligraphy. I think that's a pursuit of any kind of craft that involves the body, that involves some kind of physical process of learning. There is this myth that craft is just related to the kind of the hands and it's this technical thing and in, in reality it involves the whole kind of spirit the whole soul that involves the intellect it involves the body and i think in that sense it, it really is transformative thanks i think that's a great answer and a great way to end our conversation thank you so much safe it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you